0: There's a story that I seem to tell once or twice a year here at Madison Church, and so if you've been here for five years, this certainly is not going to be the first time you've heard the story. It'll probably be the... 10th or 11th or 13th time that you've heard this story. But if you're newish to our church and it's since the pandemic, uh, this will be a new story for you. And the reason that I like this story is because it uh, serves a variety of purposes for me to illustrate a point that I'm so um, desperately trying to make. Now, um, maybe you don't know this, but our church was started seven years ago In 2014, we started in that fall, September. Before that, I had felt like I was gonna be a counselor, and so I was already taking graduate school to do therapy. But then I felt God had really interrupted that's a good word for it. God had interrupted my life and really took it in a different direction, which was, I think I need to start a church. And God said, Yeah, you should definitely start a church. Um, I knew that this church was going to be different. We're not going to focus on a couple things that a lot of churches focus on. One of the things we weren't going to focus on was becoming uh, really, really big. A lot of churches, that is one of the main goals. And that just wasn't going to be one of mine or one of ours. Another goal is that they want to be one of the fastest growing churches. And again, that's nothing wrong with that if that's the goal, but that wasn't one of mine. I wanted to focus more on things like community and making disciples. And I believe that every single person in this room watching online or listening that you all have gifts and you don't have to be a pastor to contribute to God's mission in the world. And yet at so many of these churches that are fast growing and so many of these churches that um, are big, it's run by professional clergy. Guys like me who get paid to do everything. And so instead of becoming one of those churches, and there's nothing wrong with those churches, I found Jesus at one of those churches. It's likely that you did as well. We knew that coming to Madison, we wanted to start a different type of church. And because of that, I didn't think we'd have any partners, to be honest with you. Who wants to get involved in a church that says, well, you guys want to be the biggest? Nah. You want to be the fastest growing? Nah. Nah. Well, what do you need money for? Well, that's a great question. So I just assumed we weren't going to have any partners. And Megan and I had actually been attending a church of about 4,000 in southwest Missouri. And I tweeted something that the pastor said. This was back when I was very active on Twitter, uh, 2011. And I tweeted something that the pastor said that I thought was really great. And that that resonated with me. Well, one of the guys who went to the church, he was on the board. uh, He saw my tweet and uh, he stalked me a little bit on my Twitter profile, and he slid into my DMs. This was about ten years before that term came out. And he messaged me and said, "Hey, I'd love—I see you've been coming to uh, North Point, and I would just love to get together with you." So we met at a Chinese place like uh, Panda Express, and uh, we were just talking. And even though I didn't know this guy, the reason I took him up on the meeting was because as a church planter, I had nothing. Like now we have equipment. We can look around. We have people like Jeff and Megan who play songs. We have greeters like Judd and boards and plays. We we have things now that we can point to and say, see, look, our church is real. Go to our website, madisonchurch.com. But this was before all of that. This was before any of you. The only thing that was Madison Church was my imagination and my story. And so when he said, "Hey, you want to get together and talk about this?" That's all I had. And we talked and we talked and we talked. And at the end of it, he said, "Well, you know, I'm the I'm actually the president of the board at North Point, and uh, we'd like to extend a partnership with you," which totally blew my mind. I was like, "Why? You want to partner with with us? Even though you you were listening to me, right? Like we're not going to be this." big, fast growing thing. That's not the goal. We're not going to, we're not going to start our church in that direction. And, uh, he said, yeah. And then on top of it, uh, he was also the director of a church planning organization. He said, we'll give you $30,000, which ended up being almost half of what we used to to start our church. And so it was amazing. It's this incredible amount of momentum that was just created in one lunch meeting. And so we come to Madison. We didn't know anybody. I put out on my Facebook, I said, hey, I don't know anyone in Madison. Uh, If you do, let me know I'm trying to start a church. And that's literally how we met the first person to ever come to our church was a friend in Milwaukee who said, I have a Kid who just moved to Madison and, and you guys should meet, so we did. And, and we built it up that way. and throughout that first summer here, we went from me and him and we just kept growing, one person at a time. And there were about 35 of us meeting in the backyard of my apartment complex once a week to do what we're doing here. We have a guy and he'd play on guitar and sing, we'd pray for each other, we would talk about the Bible and talk about Jesus, and we' cast vision of what this church was going to look like. But 35 was awful cramped for a two-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment. So I said, hey, it's time to go public. And what I mean by going public was at the time, um, if you wanted to know about our church, you basically had to know somebody in the church because we were all text messages and emails. And here's his address and come out this week. We're meeting Thursday night at 7 and so by going public, we were essentially saying, we're going to put out there that we're going to meet at the same place every week at the same time. And so that way people can find us on the internet. And now if you're watching online or listening, or some of you in the room, that's how you found our church was because we had a website. We said this is where we meet every week. And this is what time we're meeting at. really exciting because we thought if this is what we were able to do with just text messages, imagine what we're going to be able to do when we go public. And again, it wasn't that we wanted to be bigger, fast growing, but we were excited that we were connecting people with God and each other. So that very first Sunday came, we spent $75,000 on equipment and stuff, and we were just excited. And, um, man, like one fourth of the people who had been coming to my apartment showed up. It was so devastating. We have pictures of me standing in, uh, the Radisson on the west side. They had 200 chairs set up for me, which was about 185 more than they needed. And, uh, so I'm just overwhelmed by all of the empty chairs. I'm just feeling like a failure. And, and it was devastating. I mean, absolutely devastating. I thought, well, one, this was embarrassing because I wasted $75,000 because they shouldn't have invested in me. They should have invested in anyone, literally anyone else. It's embarrassing because my family knows this is what I've been working for for years. I quit going to the school to become a counselor so I could become a pastor. And apparently that was a bad choice because I, I, apparently I suck at this is what I'm thinking. And I just crashed and was just so depressed. And I thought, and I honestly thought this, I thought, you know, if I would just die, Now, I'm not saying I was suicidal, because I, 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 you know, I all want to take that seriously, that there are suicidal ideations. And I'm not saying that I was suicidal, but I remember so vividly thinking that week and the weeks that came after that first service, if I would just die, man, that, that would make all this go away. I wouldn't have to be a failure in public anymore. I wouldn't have to admit that I suck at this. This would all just go away. And then I could go out like a hero if I just died right now at the age of 25, they'd be like, he started a church and he was out in Madison and then tragedy. Only the good die young. And I thought that's a better narrative than the story that I'm currently telling. Well, like I said, I've, I've told this story to you many times. We're seven years down the road. So obviously I didn't quit. Obviously we didn't quit. Obviously we kept going to work because we're still here today. But all of us, no matter what you do, whether you're a pastor or you're not a pastor, whether you've been a Christian for a long time or no time, we all go through ups and downs in life, relationally, physically, financially, and spiritually. Life is just full of ups and downs. And if life's good now, it's not going to be good forever. I'm not trying to rain on your parade, enjoy the good times while they're there. But in just being realistic, life is full of ups and downs. And that's good news for some of you who find yourselves in the valley and in the shadows right now. It's not always going to be like that. Good days will come. But I do notice that when things get tough, when things get rough, when things get difficult and challenging, the first thing that people usually give up is faith, spirituality. And if I'm just being honest, my speculation on why that is, is because it seems like the most optional. It's the easiest to give up. If your relationship sucks, it's hard to get a divorce if you're married. It's hard to move out of an apartment in a lease that you're signed to for the next eight months. Well, you can't, if your relationships stink, well, you can't get out of the lease. We can't break up just yet. We got to wait. If things are tough at work, you still need to get a paycheck. You can't just tell your boss to go away or go some other place you still need to get paid. So you're going to keep going to that bad job. You're going to stay in that relationship that you don't like because you can't get out of your lease. You can't get a divorce. So where do we make the cut? Oh, just stop showing up to my small group. Just stop showing up to church. No one will notice. No one will care. And if God cared about me, why didn't he step in to avoid this? If God really wanted me to stick around, why isn't he more tangible right now? Thomas Long, who's a theologian, um, writing about the passage that we're talking about tonight, says, As long as things go well, of course remaining faithful is little challenge. But when trouble starts, when the storms of sorrow begin to rage, when the weeds of failure grow in the garden, when the valley of the shadow of death closes in, when the mouth goes dry in the spiritual desert, when all hell breaks loose, then we are tempted to ad-lib the ending, to trade God's story for one that is happier, easier, more upbeat, safer, less demanding, or at least one we can touch and see and hold. With our own hands. You see, when things are easy, well, yeah, showing up is easy too. But when things aren't easy, it gets harder to show up, doesn't it? It gets hard when our relationships are so strained that just seeing the person, whether it's a partner, a romantic, a child, a boss, it just seeing them makes you angry. It gets hard when the grip of that addiction just feels so tight that it's all you can think about. It gets tough when this part of your life or that part of your life begins to crumble and it feels like literally stones falling on you. Every step is difficult. And it's in these times that we're most vulnerable that we walk away from our faith. But fortunately for me, and fortunately for you, fortunately for all of us, there is another end to the story. There is another alternative route That we can take. And that's why today we're going to explore how we can cultivate a faithfulness that lasts. Well, as I mentioned, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor of our church and we are in part six. The seven-part series through the first four chapters of the New Testament book of Hebrews. And so we're going to be going into chapter three today. If you want to follow along, you certainly can use one of those house Bibles. Hebrews is toward the end of that big book. You can also use your smartphone if you have a Bible app. And we'll have the words on the screen. And uh, if you're new with us and you're watching online or listening, whatever it might be, we just want to say welcome to you. We're so glad um, that you're joining us today. Now, the reason that I've called this series Finding My Faith is because the content in these first four chapters, no coincidence at all, it was written to help people find their faith. The original audience who was receiving this message 2,000 years ago were Jewish Christians. Okay? What does that mean? Very simply, They were Jewish people, Judaism. They had a set of religious beliefs and they converted to Christianity. So he's writing to these people who uh, up until years ago had an entirely different basis for faith than they have right now. And they're being, it's, it's a struggle. It's hard. Life isn't good. All the things that we just spent the last 10 minutes talking about were happening to them. And so the author of Hebrews, who we don't know who they are, but they don't want these people to walk away. And so they write this letter to them to encourage them, to help them find their faith so they don't have to walk away from their faith. Now, today we're reading the entire third chapter of Hebrews. Okay, we spent five weeks going through two chapters and we're going to spend just one day. Sunday, going over the entire third chapter. And the reason is, is because we're having we're having a transition in Hebrews. Now, if you'll remember, I've mentioned a couple times if you were here, but if you weren't, Hebrews was meant to be read out loud. The original audience were going to hear the letter of Hebrews. Why? Because at that time, only about 5% of the population could read okay? That's very different than the society that you and I live in, in which 95% of people can read to some capacity. And so the writer of Hebrews sends us and wants us to be read out loud. So it needs to be read like a sermon, like what we're doing right here. And what happens in chapter three is that they go into this long exhortation. It's a speech. It's supposed to be persuasive and argumentative at some points. And so that's why we're going into it today. Now, a major theme in Hebrews has been that um, Christians are the people of God. You and I, we are the people of God. We are a family of spiritual brothers and sisters, of parents, of moms and dads. We belong in this family of God. And just like the people of Israel from the Old Testament, we read in Genesis and Exodus of the Old Testament, we have choices to make and we have experiences. And sometimes we go through the wilderness and we go through the desert. And that's what the writer is going to talk about. Today. So beginning with verse one, chapter three. So dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. For he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. But Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses. Just as the person who builds the house deserves more praise than the house itself for every house has a builder, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. His work was an illustration of the truths God would reveal later, but Christ as the son is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house. If we keep our courage and remain confident, and our hope in Christ. So again, the author, well, what have we began every single Sunday where we talk about the author of Hebrews connects it with Jesus right away. He's, he has something he wants to talk about, but first it always begins with Jesus. And what I hope is that in, in weeks or months or years, when you come back to reread Hebrews, you'll remember that as you're reading Hebrews again, and you'll say, Oh yeah, how does this connect with Jesus? Cause I know that it's supposed to, um, Today, we need to pay attention that the author is amplifying Jesus. He's talking about Moses and Jesus. And he's not trying to say that Moses is the Messiah or that Moses was like the Old Testament Jesus, but rather what the author of Hebrews is doing, for some of you who like to nerd out on this stuff, he's actually using some of Aristotle's um, theories on how to persuade people. And so Aristotle would say that compare a good person with illustrations uh, or yeah, compare a good person with an illustrious person for this affords grounds for amplification and is noble if he can be proved better than men of worth. Aristotle saying, if you want Jesus to seem pretty great, compare Jesus to somebody who is pretty great. And if Jesus is in fact greater than that person, how much greater is he going to be when we're doing this? So this is like when you're watching a, McDonald's commercial, right? And what does McDonald's do? They show you the very best possible scenario of a cheeseburger. You and I have never seen it. It's like Bigfoot. Okay. We've never seen it except in these commercials. Okay. What does McDonald's not do? They don't show you a maggot infested Whopper. They don't say, don't go to Burger King. They're gross because that doesn't work. See, McDonald's is using Aristotle and saying that, look at this. This is so good. You like cheeseburgers and ours are the best. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, you guys, you love Moses. Remember, you guys were formerly Jews and Moses was the top dog. But now you're Christians and Jesus is greater than Moses. Well, and then the implication would be for these Jewish Christians that if Jesus is greater than Moses, then he's greater than Abraham and he's greater than Joseph and he's greater than Isaiah and Daniel and David. Because that's the natural flow of the argument. And so in just one sweeping motion here, what we could miss in the 21st century, uh, reading this in Madison, Wisconsin, is that the guy who writes this, the guy or gal, is saying Jesus is so much greater than anyone in the entire Old Testament. And he is our example for positive faithfulness. So as we ask the question, how do I cultivate a faith that lasts, a faith that can take me through the valleys, through the shadows, that can get me through the low times, the darkness and the oppression? The author of Hebrews is saying, if you need a positive example of how to do that, look at Jesus. Yes, Moses is great. And yes, David and all those other guys, good. But if you're looking for a perfect example of faithfulness, look no further than Jesus So we have a positive example, but now we're going to move into the negative example, starting with verse seven. The author says, this is why the Holy Spirit says, today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There, your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them. And I said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So on my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all things that belong to Christ. Remember what it says today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. And who was it who rebelled against God even though they heard his voice? Wasn't it the people Moses led out of Egypt? And who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned, whose corpse lay in the wilderness? And whom was God speaking when he took an oath that would never enter his rest, that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. The fundamental failure of the people of Exodus, the people, these Israelites who were led out to the wilderness was the refusal to believe that God was good and God was working all around them and God was leading them to somewhere better. And you and I might think that's kind of crazy because we weren't enslaved. Like the people of Israel were in Egypt and God delivers them out of Egypt with with plagues and different miracles. And then when they're running away from the Egyptians, we read that the Red Sea parts and they can cross the Red Sea. I mean, we've never stood at Lake Mendota or Monona standing there like, man, it'd be really great to get across the lake and not have to go on the isthmus. And and God says, don't worry, here you go, walk. That's never happened. We'd be blown away if that happened food fell from the sky when they were starving in the desert. God said, you need food. Here's food falling from the sky. And they saw miracle after miracle, sign after sign, wonder after wonder. And still they grumbled and complained and didn't believe in God. And the author says, quoting the psalmist, it's because their hearts were hard. It's because they didn't believe. And in this case, the author goes back, um, to Aristotle, again, Aristotle who wrote, it is by examination of the past that we judge the future. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing is saying, look back at the past and avoid what your ancestors did. Because look where it got them. Nowhere. Their corpse are still in the ground. And so it's a warning to all of us. He's warning those people then. He's warning us now. He's warning anyone who has access to his letter today. Do not harden your heart. He mentioned something that I think is just really relevant to a lot of us talking about for if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as we first believed, we shall share all things in Christ. Isn't that true? For those of you who found faith, do you remember what it was like when you first found faith, the energy, the excitement, the life that you found. And then after some days, weeks, months, maybe years, It just doesn't seem that exciting. And the energy is just not quite there anymore. That's not just you. It's not just us. The writer of Hebrews says, this is what happens. But if you can persevere until the end, even after your emotions have died down, you will share in the rest that God has for you. The author is demanding, begging, pleading, arguing, be faithful and practice endurance. And if you do, there is a promise of rest and reunion at the end of our lives. The author also stresses the importance of caring for one another, to encourage one another, and to be encouraged by one another. So we have a positive example. We can look at Jesus and say, this is good faith. And then the author of Hebrews says, here's an example of people who didn't. Here's an example of people who totally messed this up. So what does this mean for you and I today? How can we cultivate a faithfulness that lasts in 2021? Consider that being in the wilderness, in the desert, can either pull you closer to God or push you away from God. And the choice is completely up to you. The hard times that you're going through can either be what drives you closer to God or can be what drives you away from him. If you want to use the difficult times that you're going through, whether they're with relationships or finances at work, something physical or medical that's going on, something spiritual, if you want a faithfulness that can last, the first thing that you need to do is focus on Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews says. That's where he starts. And then he says, Here's your perfect example of faithfulness. And so, if we want to know how to be faithful, we need to focus on Jesus, the things he said, the things he did. Well, how do we do that? Very simply stated, we can read in the New Testament biographies of Jesus. There are four of them. And we can read what Jesus was telling to people just like you and I 2,000 years ago. But it's not just then, we can pray. We can pray and say, God, what, what, what would you say about this situation? God, can you give me strength for this situation? God, give me peace, give me comfort. God, help me. I feel like I'm losing my faith here. And God is still speaking to us today. The second thing that you need to do is you need to focus on Jesus, but you also need to focus on your choices. You need to focus on yourself. If you want a faithfulness that lasts, yes, you have to take responsibility. Nobody can grow for you as a church will grow with you, but we can't do it for you. And so you need to focus on your choices. And that means that you need to focus on doing the right thing, not the easiest thing. And oftentimes, isn't that the choice? They can do what's right, can do what's easy. We need to focus on what is the right thing in doing that. But this faith isn't this faith isn't meant to be selfish, where we just, if I just focus on Jesus and just my choices, I'll be good to go. If you want a faithfulness that lasts you need to focus on other people, focus on Jesus, focus on your choices, but focus on other people. We need to live in Christian community with one another to encourage each other and to uplift each other. At the beginning, I mentioned that you might be going through a bad time right now. And the encouragement is that someday you'll be going through a good time. And, and for those of you going through a good time, a, a warned kind of a warning that it, it may not always be good. But the thing is, is that when you're in a community of other believers, if you are going through a bad time, one, you have other people in the community who are also going through a bad time too. You find out that you're not alone, that the things you're going through aren't that so individualistic that nobody else can relate. You find out that, man, people are more like me than I thought. The flip side to that is there are other people in the community who are not going through what you're going through. And that's a good thing because they can help you and they can encourage you. They can be 10 steps down the road from you. They can have gone what you went through and they can help you. And you see how that flips. If you're in a good spot right now that you could help somebody because someday you won't be in a good spot and you'll need the person that perhaps you're helping today to help you in two years, or perhaps it'll be someone different, but we need one another. You may be thinking, Stephen, I'm not Jesus, I'm not Moses. I don't think I can be as faithful as them, but let me remind you that the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was praying in the garden he was begging God to change his mind. Jesus was begging his heavenly father, do not make me die tomorrow afternoon. And Jesus on the cross asked, God, why have you abandoned me? And we know God doesn't abandon himself. How could he abandon himself? But Jesus, as a human, felt like he was abandoned by God. So you can relate to Jesus if you have ever felt abandoned by God. Many times Moses felt abandoned by God, but more often we read about how Moses abandoned God. If you've ever abandoned God, you can relate to Moses. And then there's me, your pastor. And we obviously didn't quit because we are still here today. And what we decided to do after that first week that was really rough is that we're going to continue to do a few things. We're going to focus on Jesus. We're going to focus on what we can control, which was doing what God called us here to do. We're going to focus on just taking care of one another. And the Wasai continue continued to grow and grow and grow. And we continue to reach out and do different events. And then I remember a guy named Matt coming to our church that I invited from work. And I baptized Matt. And I thought, I'm so glad I didn't quit when I wanted to. Because look at Matt and his new faith. Less than a year later, Matt started inviting this woman who worked at the bakery of the same place that we worked named Brianna. We baptized Brianna together. And I thought, God, thank you that I did not quit when I quit because this is just amazing. And a year later, Brianna and I are in a pool baptizing her mom. And I thought, God, thank you that I did not quit when I wanted to. And it's not because I'm a super saint. I'm not. I'm trying to be real with you that I didn't want to keep going on. I wanted to do something else. I just wanted to go away. But God showed up. Now you might think, is it all sunshine and rainbows now? No. The last year has been terribly hard on every single person, me included. It's been a wilderness experience for a lot of people in a lot of uh, different ways. When people would ask over the last 15 months how I was doing, and they were like, "You," I could tell that they really were interested. I would say, I feel like I'm doing twice or three times the amount of work I was doing a year ago for half the results I was getting a year ago. It was so discouraging that I felt like I was working so much harder than I've ever worked in my entire life for this much progress or to just keep things from not getting worse. And at times I don't feel like I kept things from getting worse. Over the past six months, we've had a couple people leave our community who were tremendous contributors to our mission here at Madison Church. But not just that there were Fantastic contributors. Two of these people were some of my best friends. And that's been hard. That's been dark. But in these times, when I feel like this sucks, I look to Jesus. Now remember, he is my example of faithfulness. I said, Stephen, you can only control yourself. Focus on my choices. I said, Stephen, you got a great community around you. Lean on them. And even though those people have left, other people have stood up in really, really big and important ways. And they've stood up, and they've been my friend. They've stood up, and they've contributed at Madison Church. And I've seen God fill in the gaps in ways that I didn't think were going to happen. Perhaps you might find this week on my part, you think that a pastor should uh, <laughs> not be like that. But um, I'm not always right, but I am always real. And I think that God calls us to be authentic, not always right. I would encourage you that in the season of life, that whatever you might be in, that you be real. Don't worry about being right. Be real and worry about making it right. To drift from our faith to the point that we've lost, um, it's not just to leave behind, to drift away from, sorry, to drift away from our faith to the point that we have lost our faith. It's not just leave behind ideas or ideals, but it's to abandon a relationship that we have with a God who left heaven to have a relationship with us. Let's not do that. Let's hang in there and cultivate a faith every single day.